Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on November 3rd, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. In this episode, we'll talk some more about human evolution with John Hawkes, a physical anthropologist from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Graham Townsley, the producer of a three-part episode of the PBS series Nova called Becoming Human. First up, John Hawkes. He studies the bones and genes of ancient humans. He recently spoke at a meeting of the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing in Austin, Texas. First, we'll hear a short clip from his talk about the recent advent of the gene that allows humans to digest lactose. It enabled us to get nutrition efficiently from milk. Then we'll hear an interview with Hawkes we did after his talk. When you have a new mutation... One of the things about it is that it, if it's selected, increases extraordinarily slowly for a long time. Our best estimate of the age of the lactase version in Europeans is about 8,000 years old. 5,000 years ago, these early Neolithic skulls, or skeletons, the ones that were genetically sampled, they don't have it. It's not found in them. So about 5,000 years ago, introduction of agriculture into Europe is not there. That's exactly what we expect. It takes a long time for this to get to any substantial frequency. And if you sample 25, 30, maybe 50 people from that time, you're not going to find it. Today, this is about 80% in parts of Northern Europe, which means that the number of lactase intolerant people is about the square of 20%, about 4% in Northern Europe. That's not right. It means that 80% of today's Northern Europeans, 80% of the population of Germany, got this gene from one person who lived 8,000 years ago. What's the population of Germany? Something like those 60 million, right? So it's 80% of 120 million copies of lactase in Germany now came from this one person. But I'll tell you something else about this, and something that's very interesting, is that there's 40 million copies of this gene floating around in Germany now that are descended from the people who had the non-tolerant version. There were not 40 million of those genes 5,000 years ago. There probably weren't 10 million of those genes. So both versions of this have undergone a massive increase in population. One more than the other. One's gone from zero up to 80%. The other one's gone from not very many to many. All right, so... The kind of thing we look at is, if we look at genome life and ask how many of these things are there, it look like they've increased in frequency a lot lately. Um, how many? Uh, it looks like about 3,000. When I started this work in 2006, nobody thought this was unusual for 3,000 genes under selection. Well, who knows? I mean, it should there be. But 3,000 genes under selection, let me tell you, there are 40,000 amino acid changes between humans and chimpanzees, and probably only about 12,000 of those are selected. So what we're saying is that a fourth of the potential differences between humans and chimps are underway now in the human population. That's like three million years of evolution packed into the last 20,000 years. Why so much genetic variability in place so recently? A big reason would seem to be that the human population increased so much in the last few tens of thousands of years. More people means more opportunities for new mutations, which in turn means more genetic variability to select from. After Hawks's presentation, we talked more about the lactase gene's recent arrival on the scene. It's possible that single gene arose 
more than once, uh, or can you tell that uh, by the surrounding genetic the structure? Lactase. Yes. Yes. Um, it looks like from the surrounding structure that it just happened once. It's, it's linked to one haplotype. The haplotype's widespread. There is in the Caucasus. Um, looks like the same mutational event probably with a slightly different haplotype background so the idea might be that there was an early recombination where some of the people sort of stuck around in the Caucasus and uh, just sort of like the whole logic of out of Africa is more genetic diversity in Africa than outside. Same thing with any given gene. If you find it and it's real diverse in one little area and then everywhere else is uniform, the idea might be it originated there. Now, the African versions of this, there's three different ones, three mutational events, and there's uh, an Arab, Arabia-focused uh, mutational event. So it happened five times, um, and twice at the same, the same, uh, same mutational change. The same regulatory change. But you can tell that they're discrete events because of the surrounding totally material. different surroundings, yeah, exactly. The haplotype. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And anywhere where people are adopting milk drinking, you would expect to see this mutation arise and then be selected for and stabilize. Well, it's suggestive because it happened five times. But it didn't happen in Mongolia. And people have been dairying there for a long time. So, you know, it raises a question. How... In the old days, the argument used to be that, well, maybe this is a classic polymorphism. It was always around at low frequency. It was under genetic drift. And in populations that adopted dairying, it rapidly changed, like a quantitative trait. And it didn't happen that way. You know, these people started drinking milk. We've got the milk residue now on these ancient pots, right? It's really cool. It's a good example, but it's a misleading example because we've got all the facts, right? <laughs> so when I apply to anything else, it doesn't work. But with lactase, we know the facts. We know that they started drinking milk immediately after they started keeping cattle and, and goats and in Arabia camels. And that these guys, the linear band keramic people who were in Germany, who they sampled, the 5,000-year-old sample, those guys were drinking milk all the time. They didn't have the mutation. Um, so... It was the environment that changed, made the opportunity for an adaptive response, and the adaptive response happened a discrete number of times, but not everywhere. And maybe it didn't happen because it just it's just a rare event. Maybe it didn't happen because for some reason, I mean, right now, lactase is most the European version. You should call it that because it's most common in Northern Europe. It doesn't mean it came from there. Um, it's common there. Why is it common? Because those guys in northern Europe depended on milk more because they didn't have the cereal crops with as high productivity. And so we find the same mutation in the Near East. It's not as common, presumably because the selection wasn't as strong. Um, it's very multifactorial. Absolutely. When we look at an allele over space, the things that can contribute to it are its age, it's uh, you know the selection pressure, however much it is, how that varies over space, how gene flow varies over space. Some of these alleles are too widespread. If we just say, how fast are people moving between these places, there shouldn't have been time for something like lactase to get all the way to Spain and India. It shouldn't move so fast unless you've got sort of higher order things going on with the gene flow. And we do. I mean, the Roman legions, the Romans picked up this legion from Iran and put them in England 
within, <laughs> you know, within a few weeks, yeah, within exactly. months. Yeah. I said, listen, you guys, we can't trust you over here. We're going to station you in Britain. <laughs> and they stayed there for 200 years. And so, you know, we really have this weird gene flow in the last couple thousand years that affects the distribution of this stuff. But as a rule of thumb, that's, you know, and all, those are always, uh, you know, able to be violated. Mm-hmm. You know, I always try to, uh, when I'm, when I'm talking to people about malaria and sickle cell, yeah. I say any place where there's widespread malaria, mm-hmm. you will eventually see the, uh, the introduction and stabilization of Sickle look cell. at malaria. Malaria is the best example mm-hmm. because there's so many genes that are genetic responses. And we know where they are because they're blood things, so we test right. them. Right. Um, there's at least seven uh, discrete so in, introductions, right. right? In West Africa, you've got a sickle cell. In Pakistan, southern Iran, east, or western India, you've got sickle cell, different sickle cell. Right. So that happened twice, except in that same area, you have African sickle cell. Because they came with the slave traders. Right, right. So you've got African and indigenous sickle cell in the same place. Sickle cells nowhere else. You've got in Thailand, in, 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 stick with Africa for a second. You've got hemoglobin E. You've got a little bit of alpha thalassemia. You've got a lot of hemoglobin, I said E, but I meant C. Hemoglobin C. Hemoglobin C. You've got G6PD deficiency. In the Mediterranean, you've got beta thalassemia. In Thailand, you've got hemoglobin E. These are all blood conditions. They're all blood things. Yeah, they're all classic. Related to the fact that there's malaria in the environment. Yeah, that's right. They're all classic polymorphisms. We've been looking at those for 50 years. And so each place, you've got this different knockout, basically, Mm -hmm. mutation. Why all these knockouts? Because knockouts are easy. And that's the first thing that's going to happen is any mutation that breaks the gene, if your fitness, especially you know, since when it's rare in heterozygotes, the only things that appear... You know, that it starts going up. Then they start interacting with each other right. if they get high enough. So in West Africa, you've got these villages where there's hemoglobin C, and you've got other villages where there's sickle cell, and there's not a great amount of overlap, even though they're living in the same place. It's because hemoglobin C and sickle cell negatively interact with each other. Mm-hmm. It's a negative epistasis. So you can't have both. If one is high, the other one has to be low. Just because any children wouldn't survive. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If uh, you would expect, and Frank Livingstone did a lot of simulations. This was early days of computer simulation, and he was real interested in this question. What happens when hemoglobin E comes in in a place where the other Thailand one already is? Because E has a really, it's really beneficial. doesn't have as much of a negative impact. And he calculated how fast this should spread against sort of, it's almost like the gene would spread really fast in the absence of any other allele. Mm-hmm. If there's another allele there, it's like a little bit of a headwind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't move as fast, uh, but it still, it still moves. So we understand with, I mean, the malaria example, one of the bottom lines is it really is just chance. You can put yourself in an environment where you're dying of some, something and a genetic adaptation is possible, but you still have to have the mutation. And mutations are rare events. Mm-hmm. And good mutations. I mean, with malaria, it's all these knockouts because malaria is deadly. You know, anything, it's, it's like throwing everything at the problem. You know, every gene that could in- interfere with this parasite, we're going to select something. Whereas with lactase, what can you do to digest milk? You have to upregulate that gene, which means that you have to hit one of its regulatory regions, which are small. 
So you've got to have a mutation, and we know that two populations did it the same way, and three did it in some other, possibly three different ways. But it's not it's not easy. But when it happened, it was so advantageous that it spread like wildfire. So you've got this sort of combination of it's really, really, really good, but it's one in you know a hundred million. Mm-hmm. And if you want to wait for something that's one in a hundred million. You got to have a hundred million people, <laughs> or you'll be waiting a long time. <laughs> In the fruit fly work, where they just started churning out huge numbers so that they could get mutations to occur more frequently. Antibiotic resistance the same way. Um, you know, they test these antibiotics in a lab. They've got it in the dish. And they say, this kills it every time. It kills it every time. It kills it every time. And it's non-toxic. And that's like threading a needle. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use it in humans and it kills them every time. But when you start applying it to 10,000 humans, 10,000 Petri dishes, and the bacteria have a chance every time of having the thing that they used to test pesticides, you know, on, on insects in the lab. And they would find this pesticide and it's like, it kills them every time. And then they'd spray it on a field. And within a couple of years, there are these flies around that the pesticide doesn't kill anymore. And they're, they're actually enjoying the pesticide. Yeah, yeah. You know, they you know, spray it on because we can handle this and our wild competitors can't. You know, <laughs> But that's that's the way it goes. So now the key question, mm-hmm. uh, was the lactose tolerance genetic structure uh, directly responsible for the increase in survival rate or were the people who didn't have it just so busy spending half the day in the latrine that they weren't as efficient as their as their comrades there? You know, I I talked to someone one time who actually name, have an answer for this. His name I will not repeat <laughs> because it's someone who ought to know better. But the field is full of people who ought to know better. Who said, "Well, what difference does it make? You can drink milk. You know what? What's the big deal? You know what does that do?" And I was I was just like, <laughs> first of all. You know, basically, from from a system standpoint, of course, milking is more efficient than than raising the, than meat. You know, right. you, you get more calories. Out Sustainable of cow, resource milk. too. But from a from an individual standpoint, you get thirty percent more calories out of milk if you can digest that yourself than if you let the bacteria do it. You can drink it in in small quantities. Um, you'll get energy out of it, but you get thirty percent more if you can handle it yourself. So I look at that 30% and somebody could easily say, well, you know, but yeah, but 30% is a lot to a woman who's lactating, you know, who's, I mean, there's 700 kilocalories a day that they're putting out through breast milk. And if you can get 30% more out of what you're consuming, if you can take your child off of that more easily because you're milking in larger quantities and the kid can handle this initially. So you can see the pathway by which dairying becomes effective culturally, but once the mother can do this, you're saying 30% more calories means I can get pregnant 30% faster. It means I can recover from lactation that much faster. It means that, I mean, it, it translates directly to fertility. And I think there's a tendency, you know, people think about selection. It means that you survived the disease or it didn't kill you or, well, it'd be good if our hearts didn't break down when we were 70. But really it's about how fast can you Regenerate. How fast can you have kids? How fast can you be mature enough to have kids? Especially when the population is growing already. 
when we get to the Neolithic and a population is growing because of food, the things that grow fastest in a growing population are the things that make you reproduce faster. Because the more grandkids you have, if you can have your grandkids competing with other people's kids, that's twice as many of your genes. Beginning on November 3rd, the PBS science program NOVA airs a three-part episode about the last seven million years of human evolution called Becoming Human. I spoke by phone to the producer, anthropologist Graham Townsley. So Graham, this is a pretty exciting series of programs. Just give us a general idea of of what the audience is going to be in for. What we've tried to do in this NOVA series is uh, a number of things. We've tried to create, tell the whole grand story of human evolution, uh, starting uh, from the time we split with the apes, leading up to our own species, Homo sapiens, again, but including in it all the latest findings. And of course, every five or ten years, the whole landscape shifts as new discoveries come in. And uh, we've also tried to incorporate some of the new ideas about the types of things that might have powered uh, human evolution. And and one of the things that has really come to the fore, and of course this was, I was new to a lot of this subject matter, so this was a discovery for me, um, was this idea that it was wild climate variations, which in some way was the engine of our evolution. And there's this remarkable fact that if you, Put a graph of, you know, the speed of human evolution and put it next to a graph provided by paleo climatologists of how climate variations happened over the last few million years. The correspondence is amazing. Every time there are these bursts of wild climate variability, human evolution takes a big step forward. So um, it just is just a very it's a very provocative and interesting idea. It's one of the ones that we made the sort of centerpiece of our series. And and let's talk about that for just a second. I mean, it it makes sense in that you'll have some natural variability among a, a population of humans or pre-humans, and when the climate has uh, done something interesting, like shift wildly. All of a sudden, there's a big selection pressure on a small uh, group of those uh, within that population that ha- happens to have an advantage in that new situation. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what they talk a lot about is this idea, that, that I think, the, the fallback hypothesis, that, of course, when these swings of, um, uh, of climate happen, they put pressure on all animal populations. And what most animals tend to do is that they fall back on the one thing they're good at. So that the, for instance, the robust australopithecines who have these massive jaws, they get bigger jaws and their diet, they concentrate on the one thing, way they know they can get food, which is uh, crushing nuts and roots and things like that. What's interesting about the human case is that it seems that the response in our line of evolution was to grow a bigger brain which gave us the capacity to adapt to these swings. So rather than focusing in on one behavioral trait and one little ecological niche and hanging on to that through these periods of uh, climate variability, our ancestors sort of went with them and developed bigger brains which would allow them to uh, come up with new behaviors and adapt to these things. So 
it's really um, I, I found these a fascinating set of of, of ideas. It, the idea, I guess, is really that so that rather than adapting to any one specific environment, we adapted to variation itself. And that would be a really key thing for making uh, a species incredibly successful. And hey, look at us, we're everywhere in huge numbers. It's so true. And, and, um, and for the first time in the seven million years since we split from the apes, there's only one uh, hominid species on Earth. And I think that's another very interesting thing that uh, uh, we all discovered in this process, that uh, the norm through most of the last seven million years is that there were many different hominid species uh, on Earth at the same time. And it's only in the last 30,000 years, since the last Neanderthals disappeared, that there's only been one, us. And so that's, uh, it's just a very, that was a very surprising thing to me, and I think it would be to most people. It's, it's a fascinating, I mean, we've kind of seen it in, uh, the Planet of the Apes movies, if you will, but it's a fascinating idea to, uh, to contemplate a world in which there are multiple species within our homo genus and and to try to imagine how they might all interact it really is and of course we have no real way of knowing and i guess uh the the nearest examples we would take would be from the ape world and we think of different you know chimps and bonobos or different species of gorilla uh in similar environments and um would they interact or not what was it very it's just it, it is it's a fascinating idea and the other great question, of course, is why did all the others die out? Why were we so successful and all the others not? And uh, it seems to be something to do with this uh, this uh, remarkable intelligence that we evolved and this capacity to uh, adapt to so many environments. The Neanderthals sort of did one thing and just kept doing it. They were top-level carnivores and they were hunters living off the herds at the edge of the uh, ice sheets. And it couldn't adapt, and um, suddenly along comes this species which seems to be able to live everywhere and has this very um, adaptable uh, and flexible technology and and learns so fast and keeps developing things. And And not only learns, but is able to then pass on that new knowledge to the next generation, which doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. Exactly, exactly. And of course, one of the other uh, great things that really interested me, and my background is in cultural anthropology more, um, is this whole phenomenon of culture. And um, again, of course, that doesn't leave much in in the archaeological record going back, you know, um, very long way. But it's just very interesting to think about at what point do our ancestors stop being sort of ape-like creatures and, and develop culture? When does language emerge? When do all these social impulses uh, emerge? When exactly does a culture start to exist outside of outside of their brains that can get passed on from generation to generation? One of the other subjects based on the press materials I've had a chance to see that is going to come up is uh, the, the possible importance that um, you know, sorry for the to you vegetarians who are listening, but that meat might have played in our 
in our uh, physical and uh, mental uh, evolution. Yes, it seems that that's uh, that that's huge, um, um, and, and it has a lot to do, I think, with uh, our brains and the fact that our big brains are such energy-hungry organs. Uh, in our resting state, our brain consumes 25% of our body's energy. And um, it's very difficult to sort of fuel the energy budget that this brain then has uh, without eating meat. And uh, it seems that meat eating came in with the emergence of, of uh, our genus, the Homo genus, you know, with Homo erectus and Homo habilis, the first members of that. And uh, one of their key novel adaptations was meat eating and that that was that it was that that allowed them to go on to you know develop these larger brains these uh very energy uh energy rich concentrated packages it's it's like the uh you know the fast food of uh of its time exactly that's exactly right and i was fascinated by this and uh and uh, although, of course, you know, we can become vegetarians and we can uh, we can live quite happily, but it's very hard to imagine our evolution ever of happening, uh, ever happening uh, without meat eating. Right. This should not be construed as any kind of a value judgment on people's personal choices today. Right. So give us a quick summary of uh, each episode, when it's going to air, and, and and what people can expect. Well, the um, there are three episodes. And they start to air on um, November the 3rd, and then there's the second one on the 10th, and the third one a week later on the 17th. Uh, we organize them. There's only really one good way, I think, to tell a long historical story, and that's sequentially. So it sort of starts at the beginning and works through to the end, which is us. So the first uh, show is is about the early... Uh, the very early members of our evolutionary line, the upright walking apes who first um, sort of descended from the trees, um, we imagine, six or seven million years ago, uh, creatures like uh, Lucy, like the Kika child, Australopithecus and others. Um, and that that really goes into this very exciting idea about climate. Can we... Can we think about, I mean, what was it that, I mean, first of all, encouraged our ancestors to develop into these upright walking bipedal apes, and then secondly, propelled them on into the later evolution towards our genus, uh, Homo. And uh, we look into these cl- ideas about climate variability. So there's quite a lot in that series with, uh, I found fascinating stuff with uh, paleoclimatologists and trying to bring together, you know, their work with the work of uh, paleoanthropologists about, you know, these ancient uh, hominid species. Uh, so the first show sort of takes us from seven million years ago up to about two million years ago, which is this huge span of time when there's all these different species of of upright walking small brained apes around on, on in Africa. Uh, the second show is really about the emergence of our genus, Homo, and concentrates on Homo erectus, which is probably the most, or certainly the most successful 
a hominid species of all time. They were around for almost two million years. They colonized the whole planet. Um, and uh, we really go into what was different about them, what was what was special about them. And this seems to be the species that pioneered what it means to be human. And um, uh, we have a lot of very interesting ideas about the origins of fire, uh, about exactly hunting and meat-eating, how they might have organized that, uh, the brain growth, and all the things that sort of set the stage for for us. And um, then uh, the final show brings us up to us, and that is really about the last half million years uh, of our evolution. Uh, it looks into the amazing finds at Atapuerca in Spain, a 30 just unprecedented uh, discovery of 30 complete skeletons of a species called Homo heidelbergensis half a million years ago, um, which gave us an amazing insight into that world. And these were the precursors of the Neanderthals. So we follow that line of evolution uh, into the world of the Neanderthals. And uh, finally consider the uh, emergence of our species, Homo sapiens, and what were the things that really made us different from all the others, and why exactly are we now the only hominid on Earth after so many millions of years when lots of hominids lived uh, side by side on the planet. Um, and so there you have it. It's, uh, it's the grand arc of our human story. How many years have you been working on this? Two years. I mean, it seems like five to tell the truth. <laughs> right. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's almost two years now. It was huge. It was, uh, it was an amazing process because I, I had a sort of a background. I have a, a doctorate in, in cultural anthropology, but I didn't really know this evolutionary stuff. And um, so I feel like I got a crash uh, course in, in human evolution, which, of course, is now a huge field. And um, and then there was just the challenge of, of making the films, trying to find some way to bring these stories alive, because in visual terms, you don't have much to look at. Um, you know, we've filmed with um, all, uh, most of the important characters in the field and at their dig sites in Africa and elsewhere. And um, But it was a struggle to make them work, just come alive as films and make it a sort of watchable, entertaining story. And uh, are, are all the episodes going to be archived on the PBS site once they've aired? I'm sure they will. You'll be able to get them through the Nova PBS uh, website. But if you can catch it on your HD TV, I'm sure that's the, the most rewarding visual experience. I think absolutely. Absolutely. And they look great. They really... Uh, they really look uh, stunning. We actually ended up getting a huge variety of different visual materials, plus some really high-end um, graphics, which bring these creatures alive, bring some of the early uh, early uh, hominids alive and Homo erectus alive. And um, so they're really quite they're quite entertaining. We have characters. We make characters out of some of the uh, some of these finds and. Uh, we can really, we, they really tell a story. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, 
Idling vehicles in New York City churn out as much pollution as 9 million diesel trucks driving between the Bronx and Staten Island. Story 2, pro-golfers who slept less than four hours before the final round of a major European tournament actually scored better than those who got a full seven to eight hours of sleep. Story 3, Neko wafers are going all natural, no more artificial colors or flavors, which means sacrificing the lime-flavored Neko wafers because the green color could not be produced naturally. And Story 4, minivans are just 7% of the vehicles visiting Yosemite Park but 29% of the ones vandalized by bears. Time's up. Story 4 is true. Bears preferentially break into minivans in Yosemite. That's according to a study in the Journal of Mammalogy. Researchers think it's because minivans are more likely to have kids who are more likely to leave remnants of cereals, juice boxes, and other sweets that the bears like to snack on. The study looked at 908 vehicles broken into by bears between 2001 and 2007. Story one is true. Idling cars, trucks, and buses put out 9 million diesel trucks driving between the Bronx and Staten Island worth of pollution in New York City. That's according to an article in Environmental Health News. Bad news in a city with lots of asthmatic children. By law, vehicles aren't allowed to idle for more than one minute, but the law is rarely enforced, and vehicles sit there with the engines running for extended periods, including school buses right in front of schools filled with asthmatic kids. And story three is true. Necco wafers will now be made with ingredients like beet juice and purple cabbage, but they couldn't find a good way to make green wafers, so the lime-flavored ones are being scrapped. All of which means that story two about sleep-deprived pro golfers scoring better is totally bogus. But what is true is that amateur golfers with sleep apnea were able to shave up to three strokes off their game by getting nasal positive airway pressure treatment, or NPAP. For more, check out the November 2nd episode of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. Because televised golf may be great to sleep to on a Sunday afternoon, but when you're actually playing golf, it's good to stay awake. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news and George Musser's blog, Solar at Home, about his attempts to power his house with solar energy. And follow us on Twitter as Siam, S-C-I-A-M, and Steve Mursky. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 